You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Jay Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. Uh, It was a book written to defend what does the Bible actually teach about what Christianity is. And although it's over almost a century now old, Machen was right on target when he said, if you want to determine what true Christianity is and compare it to any other philosophy, any other quote-unquote version of Christianity, what you want to look at is how do they view God, humanity, scriptures, and Jesus Christ. And that brings us to one of the probably most familiar passages in the letter of Colossians is in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. We have what many would believe, and I agree with this, that you have a fragment here that probably is part of a hymn that the early church sung together. And it's a song, it's a hymn that proclaims the excellencies of Christ. In other words, reminds us that key to Christianity, Christianity according to the scriptures as revealed in the Old and New Testament, has to be clear on who is Jesus Christ. And so look with me at verses 15 and 17. Uh, In this hymn of exalting Jesus Christ, uh, Paul gives us three pronouncements or proclamations. And the first of those occurs in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. And then notice verse 17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, he's clearly referring to Jesus Christ. He distinguishes that in his language from God, but yet they are of the same exact nature. But you notice his first proclamation is Jesus Christ's supremacy over creation. Jesus Christ's supremacy over creation. And so you have the personal pronoun, he is, uh, present tense, indicating this is who Jesus Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And there are two terms in there that are very important that we understand correctly. The first is simply he is the image. He's not just a reflection of the Father. I mean, as Christians, we are to reflect the glory of God. We are to reflect his image. We're being conformed into his likeness. But that doesn't mean that we will one day become God. There's only one God. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one Holy Spirit. The word image here really emphasizes an exact representation. He is the exact same nature as the Father and the Spirit. And you're going to see why this is so important as we make our way through this letter. So notice he is the image of the invisible God. Now we have seen the works of God in creation. We see testimony of God's existence. None of us have seen God. And even when you think in the Old Testament of Moses being able to see the the back of God, 
you know, in a sense, God's a spirit being. So he, does, he doesn't have a back. He doesn't have a body. So God manifested his presence to him in a way that as a finite, sinful being, he was able to see it. But no one has seen God except Jesus Christ. John's opening prologue in John 1 kind of reminds us of that. And I may recall, if you think of the Ten Commandments, the second commandment expressly forbid making anything in what? The likeness or image of God. This would explain why you have the prophet Isaiah saying, God says, I will not share my glory with anyone else. Now, we love to teach kids and adults the importance of sharing. Here's something God will not share. He, he's not going to divide up his, his worship that he deserves. He's not going to settle for second or third best in your life. He says, my glory, I will not share with any others. But that brings us to the second term that we have to get clear. What does it mean that he is the firstborn over all creation? So we said his proclamation is Christ's supremacy over creation. But what does this mean that he's the firstborn? If you hear a knock on your door and you see two individuals standing there, that's probably Jehovah's Witnesses. And they will immediately, in some discussion about Christ, go to this verse and say to you, well, this is what we do teach, that Jesus is like God, He's like the Son, but he's not God. And they will latch on to this phrase in one sense, and they'll say, well, see, it says he's the firstborn. He, he was created by God. Now, it is clear Paul seems to be responding in this letter to some strains of false teaching like that that are starting to come into the lives of some of the Christians in this area. And firstborn, if you want to interpret Scripture always correctly, you don't lift one verse out of its context. You read what's around it. So you notice in certainly the Old Testament, firstborn had many privileges and blessings, double inheritance and portion because of that position. And that really is the proper interpretation of firstborn. It does not mean here he's the first created being, but he's the one who is given because he is the same as God, is given preeminence over everything. And the context of this clearly illustrates that. Because he created all things, he is to be worshipped. So for a Jehovah Witness, what I often point out is, well, if God said he won't share his glory with another, this is saying Jesus Christ receives the glory and honor due to the Father and the Spirit, doesn't that make him the same in nature. And that helps us define clearly this teaching that Paul's stressing. Jesus Christ is supreme. He reigns over all creation. You may have noticed that both verse 15 and verse 18 mention he's the firstborn. A little bit different clarification that we'll get to in verse 18. But throughout this hymn, there is emphasis on the word all. Depending on your translation, all or every, a total of about seven or eight times. So Jesus Christ is given preeminence over everything. 
Notice verse 16 speaks of things visible, invisible, thrones, rulers, powers, or authorities. These seem to all be different references to what we might call angelic realms. In other words, he, he doesn't just have authority over the physical creation, but even those aspects of creation that are unseen by us presently, angelic realms. He is even sovereign and over Satan. And this is very important because it does seem when we get a little bit later into Colossians chapter 2, that although a specific false teaching is not identified in the letter, like given a name, one of the, the things seems to implied is there was a, a struggle here for some thinking angels were to be elevated to a status almost equal to Jesus. In other words, they could serve as an intermediator, mediator role, almost equivalent to Jesus. And so in this hymn, it's clearly setting, no, that's not at all a biblical teaching. If you go to any bookstore, find a section dealing maybe with New Age angels, and you'll often find angels seem to be given a status above Christ. You know, people are fascinated by these, these beings. And many feel that there's somehow a way that you can communicate and, and interact with them. Well, it's clear saying, you know, God said, I won't share my glory with anyone else. It will only go to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, not any other angelic order, no matter how powerful they are in Scripture. But notice Christ is not just the creator of everything, but he is also the sustainer. Verse 17, Paul says, He is before all things, which means he existed before anything came into place. He existed before all things, and in him all things hold together. And the tense of that word is a, a perfect tense, which means something that happened in the past that remains in effect today. She ever thought, what would happen if the laws of nature suddenly stopped? Or who's upholding them? Who didn't just set them into motion, but constantly, day in and day out, upholds all that he's created? Here in this hymn of praise, exalting Christ's supremacy over all creation, Paul's saying that that is the work of Jesus Christ. It's under the umbrella of God's providence, his care and protection for everything. Yeah, remember we said that the, the church and the believers in Colossae were pretty much in a city who had seen its better days. And yet here, even in the midst of that, they're reminded Christ and who he is cares for you. He doesn't just care for certain aspects of creation. He maintains all of his creation. So in that first pronouncement, we see some threads that maybe were some false teaching trying to make its way into the early church. That's exactly why I had you read the Chalcedonian Creed or the definition of Chalcedon. That's a statement along with really three others that are called the ecumenical creeds. In other words, they had a, a large um, agreement among Christendom believers. But in the Chalcedonian Creed, it's written to counter Eutychus. 
Eutychus was an individual who was teaching, not that Jesus wasn't a man, and not that Jesus wasn't God, but what he taught was you had in the incarnation and in his exaltation, you have kind of two natures that sort of combine and form a weird nature, a third nature, almost like a morphing. And the church responded to that by, again, looking to confirm, well, what do the scriptures teach? And that's why in that creedal statement, it mentions uh, that, that he is of one substance, that he's truly God and truly man, that there's two natures, complete natures, but in one person. Systematic theology, we speak of that as the hypostatic union. And, and what that's saying is that is at the heart of the, the teaching, who is Jesus Christ? He's not half of one nature, half of another, and then together they're one nature. No, no, he's two complete natures, but without compromise or confusion. And you see this in Paul's second proclamation in verses 18 through 20, Jesus Christ's supremacy over the church. So he's over all creation, but he's also over the church. And you notice the phrase used there in verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. And notice how these two aspects, these two announcements go together. If Jesus Christ, in fact, had a beginning, then there would have to be one who is greater than him, one who somehow brought him into existence. So to say Jesus Christ was eternally one with the Father and the Son, you're saying there was no, nothing else that his existence was dependent upon. That again, John's prologue does a, a great job of echoing that, that he was with God and was God from the very beginning. But then notice out of that, he's now the firstborn from the dead. So you'll notice that here's where you have a, a very divergent teaching between official Catholicism, Catholic dogma, and Christianity, that the head of the church is not the pope. The head of the church is not the pastor of a church. That the head of the church, the one true church, is Jesus Christ. And he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one who has gained that victory that is certain for our resurrection, our bodily resurrection to come as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is addressing this kind of undercurrent of some teaching that's out there, just like there is today. You know, this is the big issue. Who is Jesus Christ? And so many churches, quote-unquote churches, will even meet this morning. They will have a service, but they will say nothing about Christ. Nothing about who he is, his supremacy over creation or the church. It's because of who Jesus Christ is as head of the church. You notice verse 20, what he was able to accomplish. It says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things, excuse me, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And Paul brings home these two announcements 
and says, this is, explains what Christ accomplished on the cross, that he brought reconciliation. And we're familiar with that term. I think often we're familiar to it on the opposite end, when you might read in the paper of some celebrity couple saying they have irreconcilable differences and they're separating. That means that the hurdles between them are so big, they are saying this can never be brought back together. And the word reconcile literally means to take two hostile parties and restore them to a previously harmonious relationship. Why can Christ do that? Because he's supreme over all creation and because he is the head of the church through his death and his resurrection. And so here we have one who is not just the, the creator along with the Father and the Spirit, but he is the great reconciler in this case. And notice this thought, as I just read in verse 20, he's going to bring all things together, whether things in heaven or things on earth. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, where Paul, in a letter to a different group of believers, shows us the importance of understanding Christ's supremacy as head of the church. Because in Romans 8, you look at verses 18 through 21, and you have a beautiful picture of where, where is everything going? You know, you cannot fully understand our opening chorus, we're almost home, if you don't read and understand Romans 8. Because here you have what is the final, what is the completion of our salvation look like in Christ? What does this reconciliation ultimately look like? And so follow along as I read verses 18 through 21. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And that's where Paul says, so look, in this present world, it does not always look like Christ is supreme over creation that he's supreme over the evil that is in our world. But yet we have the assurance of Romans 8. That's where everything is headed, where all of this will be done away with. And as believers, if you think about that, what that would mean to us is that the worst that could ever happen in your life is in this life. The best that you can look forward to is yet to come. What a reminder that as we go through struggles, this is like the worst it can get in this life. But to know that we have this assurance that the curse of sin, which was not a part of God's design in creation, it was a result of Adam and Eve's willingness to disobey, is overruled. And all things will be restored. Let's go back to this hymn of exalting Jesus Christ in Colossians for the final announcement. 
So Jesus Christ is supremacy is over creation. Jesus Christ's supremacy is over the church. Only through Christ is there this restoration of peace with God. And as a result, as believers, we have the peace of God. But then you get to verses 21 through 23, which may kind of seem a little bit out of place. Like when we finish this hymn, which seems to be primarily 15 through 20, what is the reason for these other inspired words? And you might pick up right away on a contrast. The words once and but now, which bring us to that third pronouncement. And that is Jesus Christ's supremacy is life-changing. Jesus Christ's supremacy is life-changing. And that holds true, as we'll see, first for the believer, but it also holds true for the unbeliever, the one who rejects the supremacy of Jesus Christ. But let's look first at verses 21 through 23. Paul loves to do contrasts like this. He does this in other letters where he'll talk about, well, you, you once were like this, but now. And so he's referring to, what was your life like pre-salvation? Well, according to verse 21, you were alienated. Notice that's the exact opposite of reconciled. You, you were alienated from God. You were separated from God. And you were Enemies in your mind. You were, you were hostile to the things of God. You, you oppose them by your very nature. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through his death. And notice the terms to present you holy without blemish and free from accusation. I reference Machen's book. And there's a, a section in the book where Machen is saying in often watered-down teaching about Christianity um, and things that what you have people talk about is they want to separate the Jesus of the Bible from the historical Jesus. You know, as if we have two different Jesuses and you, you kind of need to figure out what parts of each of those are true. Or as Machen clarifies that, and he says, there is a difference between history and information and doctrine. And, and he puts it this way. History is Jesus died on the cross. Doctrine is Jesus died on the cross for me. And as Paul writes these words, that's what he is thinking. Jesus didn't just die on the cross. That, that's history. That, you could say, is information. But to say Jesus died on the cross for you and me, that's doctrine. That, that's life-changing teaching based on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. But notice he continues in verse 23 and says, If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And here we have this life-changing response. As Christians, if you've professed Christ as your Lord and Savior, the supremacy of Christ should be transformative in our lives. 
And yet there's a responsibility of growing in Christ, our sanctification, where he says, you know, if you continue, if you remain in that faith and spend time in the word connected to Christian fellowship and teaching, then that transforming effect of the supremacy of Christ should be increasingly evident in your life. And we could say, case in point, how does Paul describe himself at the end of this? I became a servant. This was my response to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And as Paul says, he's not just saying, well, this is, you know, if you're an apostle, you should be a servant. But really he's saying, what, imitate me as I imitate Christ? As I've responded to Christ this way, that should be the response of those who acknowledge the supremacy of Christ. Now, Paul doesn't refer to this, but if that is the response of the believer, how does the supremacy of Christ affect the unbeliever? Well, they presently stand under God's wrath. No matter how pleasant or good their life may look like from our perspective, they are presently under God's wrath. And the supremacy of Christ rejected by the unbeliever will, as we know, have eternal consequences. You can mirror this to Philippians 2, where again, another prison epistle, where Paul, in the midst of being in prison, exalts Jesus Christ, doesn't forget the supremacy of Christ, where he says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul is not teaching universalism. He's not saying everyone in the world is going to go to heaven. But he's saying even those who have rejected Christ in this life, when that is the only time they will get to respond to that invitation, that they will have to admit in judgment the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And this is really to encourage the believers in Colossae to say, look, as these, these subtle teachings come your way, don't loosen your grip on the true teaching of Scripture. Be encouraged and comforted by the biblical teaching of who Jesus Christ is, because that is a defining issue in what it means to be a Christian. And we see that more and more in the world in which we live, where we have labels such as progressive Christianity coming out now, uh, in terms of modifying and changing really the heart of what the scriptures teach. That in that paradigm, you have a Jesus who is, is just loving and accepting. And because, according to that teaching, because he accepts everyone as they are, LGBTQ, you should accept everyone as they are. That's not what scripture teaches. That is not the view, the proper view, of who Jesus Christ is. And so Paul's really exaltation of Christ permeates the letter of Colossians, but you'll see it in different ways throughout the remainder of the letter. But here it's like right in our face. Let me pray. Most high God, we thank you for the clarity of your word. That it speaks of hard issues. It speaks of mysteries that we cannot always fully wrap our minds around but it always gives us what is true. 
And so I ask that our knowledge of the supremacy of Christ would not be mere information, but for each of us, would filter and direct how we live our lives this coming week as your children. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.